Jay and I are kind of in the same boat with uh, allergies. I took off last week and spent some time in the woods, and first day, this stuff hit me. Has it ever hit you? Like a ton of bricks, and I felt awful, but you can't take vacation days and turn them to sick days, so I still went in the woods every day and made it worse. It's my fault, but um, Glenn brought me a water and a peppermint, and I appreciate that, Glenn. I hope it helps, and it reminded me years ago, not here, not, not at First Baptist, but years ago, I got a got stuffed head like this one day and got up and preached and did the best I could, and, and uh, that afternoon a knock came on the door and I opened the door and it was Miss Louise and uh, Miss Louise was quite an interesting lady a wonderful lady and she said pastor and she held up a mason jar with some gold liquid in it and she said I made you a concoction that'll take away that sinus infection and that headache and clear you up real quick and I said well what's in it and she said honey lemon, some seasonings, and she said, usually I put whiskey in it, but she said, I know you don't drink, so I put kerosene in it. (laughs) And so, uh, I said, well, thank you so much. God bless you for that. Tracy, you remember that? I said, God bless you for that. So I put it on the shelf, and next time Tracy got one of these, I said, let's just see how this works. No, I didn't do that. I would. But uh, you come up with all kinds of home remedies, amen? And, um, well, let's talk about David's home today. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at chapter 14. I call this the King's Kiss. We have spent a whole lot of Sundays in 2 Samuel. We went through 1 Samuel, and then uh, in these recent months through 2 Samuel. And we're going to stop today in verse 33 of chapter 14, and we're going to take a detour from 2 Samuel. We're going to pick it up in January with chapter 15. You know, I have to look at a preaching calendar, not in terms of months, but in terms of weeks. And we've got some uh, encouraging that needs to be done. We've got some focusing uh, the tension of the church that needs to be done. We've got some holidays coming on. I want to do some holiday preaching. And uh, around the Christmas time, who's your mission is still on, and Christmas time is a great opportunity. People are a little more sensitive, and so we're going to focus on a little bit more of uh, that uh, throughout um, November and December. I'm going to be uh, out of um, out of. I'm going to be in Uganda one Sunday, at least one Sunday. Hopefully, I'm back by two Sundays, and um, so we're going to finish chapter 14, and we come to a good. Detour, a time to just get off the interstate, go into a Bucky's, and uh, walk around a little bit, all right? If you've never heard of Bucky's, you need to get on the highway and go to Bucky's, a big old Texas convenience store, and bring me something, all right? 
Well, <clears throat> last week, I had more comments on that message uh, from last week, from chapter 13, the terrible uh, assault on Tamar and the murder of Amnon and Absalom fleeing. Uh, that was a terrible event. It was consequential to David's sin, although he had been forgiven. And today we see Absalom's return. And I want to preach on that today and learn some valuable lessons about how to return to the king. How to return to the king. Um, there's a lot of ins and outs in, in 2 Samuel. When you're dealing with uh, characters, with people like this, that come into play, uh, you've you got to stop and say, I'm not trying to learn about Absalom. I'm not trying to learn about Joab. I'm not trying to learn about David. I'm trying to learn about God. And what does this tell us about God and his dealings with people? And so when you, you're reading your Bible, you ask yourself this question, what does this text, whether it's a narrative, a story, or, or a theological text, or doctrine, or what have you, you ask, what does this teach me about God? And we learn some valuable things about God in this um, text, even though it's a cast of characters. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read through this chapter we're going to look at the cast of characters. Then we're going to make a beeline to the cross. This text takes us right to the cross. And that's where we're going to go. To the cross where Jesus died for our sins. I call it the kiss of the king. So you remember, Absalom has got revenge against his half-brother Amnon. Because Amnon raped and shamed his sister Tamar. It was a terrible ordeal. And in the last part of chapter 13, we see that Absalom fled and went to King uh, Talmai, the king of Geshur, which was a Syrian, where the Syrians are today. It's a part of Syria. So this was a Syrian city-state. David had married Talmai's daughter as one of his wives, and she had two children by him, Absalom and Tamar. And that's where Absalom flees to. He goes to his mother's people, his grandfather's palace in Geshur. And the Bible says in verse 37, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. So this terrible murder, first degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder and first degree murder, premeditated, has taken place three years prior when the events of chapter 14 takes place. David mourned and lived with his heartache and this tragedy as a father and a king for three years. And verse 39 says, And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing 
he was dead. So the first person in the cast of characters I want to notice today is David and his longing. David's longing. It had been five years since Amnon raped his sister. Five years since David sent her over to that house. Three years had passed since Absalom had murdered Amnon in revenge. I am thankful today that I cannot fathom the burden of grief and hurt that David was bearing for these years. This had to be an incredible weight of grief and burden. Absalom had fled to Geshur, Syria, and now David is comforted. Now, that word comfort that we just read about David being comforted, seeing that Amnon was dead, that's a strange thing. It does not mean that David got over Amnon's death, his murder. You don't get over that. What this means is, is David had come to a resolve about it. That it was done. It was a part of his family. It had happened. And now, he has to move on. And he did not want to lose Absalom like he lost Amnon. This is a broken, burdened, hearted father doing the best he can to wade through a miry swamp that seems virtually impossible. And so he knows it's time to move on and he has to not lose another child. He doesn't want to lose Absalom. And his heart longs for Absalom. Now you can understand that. We can grasp that. And uh, David could have gone after Absalom. He could have made the journey personally to Geshur. He had, he had relations with the king Talmai. He, he was receiving tribute from them. He had married his daughter. There was no war between them. He could have gone in entourage and gone and and got Absalom and restored him, but he did not. He didn't go. And now we come to chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Now remember Joab, he's a questionable guy. We're going to see some, we're going to see Joab's demise back when we get Coming in January, we're going to see some terrible things. Joab hasn't always had David's best interest in heart. But he sees that the king's heart is toward Absalom. And so, Joab does something kind of unique. He, he does something that, um, uh, well, it, it's, to tell you the truth, I think it's a brilliant strategy. Now, brilliant does not mean right. You ever heard of an evil genius? Well, 
brilliant does not always mean right, but, but he knows how to approach King David. He's David's nephew. He's David's chief of the army. He's worked with David all these years. He's been with David from day one. He knows how to, how to get to David and, and get David. He know, let me say this. He knows how to manipulate David. And so we see the second thing is this woman's story. And let's read this real quick. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched from there a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner. Put, put on a show, put on an act to be a mourner and put on now mourning clothes and anoint not thyself with oil, but, a, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, you know what that Hebrew phrase means, Joab put the words in her mouth? It means Joab put the words in her mouth. He told her, you do exactly what I tell you to do, and you say exactly what I tell you to say. He wrote the script. He's a playwright. And in verse 4, And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king! And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? What's wrong? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead. And your handmaid had two sons, and the two of them strove together in the field, and there was none to part them, but the one smote the other, and the other and, and, and slew him, killed him. And behold, the whole family is risen against your handmaid, and they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him. For the life of his brother whom he slew, and we will destroy the heir also. So they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. In other words, she says, this fam- my son, my two sons, got in the field. They started fighting. One of them killed the other. And uh, my family stepped in, and they do not want him to be able to go to a city of refuge and have a trial. They want me to turn him over, and they want to get vengeance on him so they can have all the inheritance. And I'm left with nothing. So she's appealing to David's sense of justice. And the king said unto the woman, go to your house and I will give charge concerning thee. I'll send an executive order. We'll straighten it out. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, my lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever says aught against you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee anymore. She, she's wanting greater assurance. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God. It's always good to bring the Lord in it. That thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy me anymore, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, say on. Do you notice David's patience? He's hearing this woman out. They are appealing to his shepherd king heart. This is David being David. This is the David we all know and love. He's being patient. A lesser king would have said, Lady, I appreciate you, but do you see that line behind you? All of them want to see me too. I'm going to give you a writ. 
I'm going to give you an order. You show it to your family. They won't mess with you, I promise you. But he's patient with her. All right? He's patient with her. And the woman said, Wherefore, then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? In other words, King, you've been very patient with me. You're going to help me. But what are you doing to your own people? For the king to speak this thing as one which is at fault. Now this woman had some courage. In that the king does not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now, therefore, that I am come to speak of this thing unto the more of the king, it is because the people have made me afraid. And thy handmaid said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. In other words, king, you know how to get my home in order. Now get your home in order. Get Absalom back. I would not do that to the king. But she did. She's got some courage. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God be with thee. In other words, she said, verse 17, she said, King... I know you've got good sense. I know you're sensitive to right and wrong. You know this is the right thing to do. You need to do it. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask of thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now ask. And the king said, Is not... Let me just put it to you in, 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 in good Mississippi vernacular. Did Joab put you up to this? Did Joab send you over here with all this stuff? And the lady said, As thy soul lives, my lord the king, not none can turn to the right hand or to the left from all that my lord the king has spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaid. I bet you she was relieved to say that. To fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. In other words, he told me every word to say. And my Lord is wise. You're wise, king, according uh, to the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are in the earth. And so this is the woman's story. Now, Joab knew how to manipulate David into bringing Absalom home. And um, this woman uh, was used by, by Joab. I, I can't fault this lady here. I think she um, just did what she was asked to do. Probably thought she was doing a good thing. And she was a great actor. The Bible says she was known for her wisdom. But um, it's interesting to note that she told David a story where injustice was being done. She told David, I had two sons, one of them killed another, 
no trial. My family wants to wipe him out so they can have all the inheritance and I'm with nothing. I need your help. You got it. O king, that's not enough. I need this. You got it. O king, that's not enough. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And she knew, she told a story. Wasn't there somebody else who came to David earlier on in our experience in 2 Samuel and said, a man had a little lamb named Nathan. Remember that? Well, with that in mind, it would appear, God bless you, it would appear that um, this was a great way to approach the king and everything was up and honest, but here's some differences you need to be aware of. First of all, God sent Nathan to David. Joab sent this woman to David. There's a big difference between God and Joab, wouldn't you agree? Second, Nathan's parable confronted a guilty man. David was guilty of his sin. This makes no mention of the guilt of Absalom. This woman does not say, I know Absalom has sinned. She just simply says, you need to bring him home. You need to forgive and forget and bring this young man home. Nathan confronts David on the basis of the Holy Spirit's conviction of his sin. David wrote Psalm 34 and Psalm 51 about how convicted he was about his sin of adultery and murder. And after Nathan confronted him, he writes about it and says, I was under conviction. My health was being affected. The Holy Spirit was heavy upon me. The Holy Spirit went before Nathan. This woman confronts David and at the behest of Joab only. And they manipulate David using his sensibilities and his emotions. Folks, if, if we're going to preach and, and tell people the truth about restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation, we cannot do it on the level of the emotions and sensibilities. We have to proclaim the truth and let the Holy Spirit do His work on that soul. And they will come if they follow the Holy Spirit. So there are many other um, comparisons, but the fact is this is not of God because there is no mention of justice for Absalom, just mercy. And God always receives his banished with justice and mercy. And so this was not a God thing. Now, we come to a third aspect here. Joab's motive. Why did he do this? Why would he want Absalom to come home? If you've read ahead in 2 Samuel, you're going to see that Joab winds up murdering Absalom. And David is in that much deeper grief. That's in some weeks to come when we get to January. But as we have seen, Joab is a man of questionable motives. He's a loose cannon. I don't want any Joabs in First Baptist Church. 
You never know where they're going to shoot. And you never know what they're going to do. And you never know what their motive is. But he is a man of questionable motives. And there's this underlying fact here that Joab understands that sometimes we forget because we, we don't see it right here in the text. It's, it's in the text at large. You've got to remember Amnon, the predator, sexual predator, David's oldest son, was first in line to be king. He had a second son by the name of Chiliab who apparently died when he was young. Absalom was third in line to be king. And so Joab, I cannot say he does not share grief for his friend David, for his king. He, he sees David's heart. He sees David's grief. He knows that David wants the boy home. But David can't bring him home. And so Joab devises this plan to get him home. And there's a couple of things in the text that we read we need to know about. David is approaching 60 years old. Now, I know very well that that is not old. I will be 60 next year. I know you look at Miss Tracy and say, no way. But that is not old. But, do you remember after David had forgiven, uh, been forgiven by the Lord and, and restored in his relationship with the Lord, he goes back and God recognizes the marriage between him and Bathsheba and they have a baby boy by the name of Solomon, and they call the preacher for the first time. Uh, well, he rebuked Nathan, rebuked him, and then when the baby is born, they call the preacher to come visit in the hospital. And he goes to the hospital, and Nathan says, "I'm going to call him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord." And David understands now that it is Solomon who is going to be the next king. Solomon is going to take the throne. Solomon's going to build the temple. And it's apparent that, that, that some others know that. And so what Joab is doing here is he is getting antsy. He is getting out of the will of God and wanting to bring Absalom back. Why? Because Solomon is only six to ten years old at this time. And David's 60. Some say he's ten, some say six. I believe he was about ten years old. And so David's approaching 60, if he's not already, and the, the kingdom is rocking along. It's kind of a sad time. And if you read in verse 19, this woman, when she comes clean before David, says, King, the people in the nation have made me afraid. And what Joab is hearing is some rumbling in the nation. And what the nation is saying is, David is getting old. Let me ask you something. Can a nation kind of get antsy when their leader gets old? <laughs> Amen or oh me or you're done mad at me, one or the other. Huh? And so, he's getting older. And, and 
well, who's next in line? Well, as far as we know, you know, the prophet went in there and renamed Solomon. That boy, that boy, he's 10 years old. What are we going to do? Well, you know, there's old beautiful Absalom. Maybe he'll come back and be our king. And that's what chapter 15, 16, and 17 are about. We'll get to that in January. But nonetheless, David, or Joab, had apparently talked with David about this many times. That's indicated in the text. We'll see here in a minute. And I cannot say that Joab did not care for David's hurt. I don't know that. But the fact is, if you take a close look at the woman's dramatic appearance before David, it is as if David is in the wrong. And it's all David's problem. There is no suggestion on how to deal with Absalom's crime, with his sin. So Joab's motive is at best based upon ignorance of God's will, or even as a base of hoping to ingratiate himself to David, and if not David, ingratiate himself to Absalom, who is sure to become king, because the people are rumbling. Well, look at verse 23, and we see Absalom's return. Or verse 21, rather. Um, And the king said unto Joab, Behold, now I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom home again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel... Well, let me read that in a minute. Let's talk about this here. David said, go get him, but don't bring him to me. You bring him to his own house. You know, get all the sheets off the furniture and open the windows, put some Febreze in there and stock the refrigerator. And that's as far as he's going to get. He's just going to get to Jerusalem. I don't want him in my house. He's not going to see my face. Now, there's two possibilities about this. First of all, David was wrong in the way he handled this, or David was wise in the way he handled this. And there's three different viewpoints that come about. One says that David was wrong, and that he only granted partial forgiveness, which was not forgiveness at all, and that precipitated this rebellion. And so some, I've heard whole sermons on this, on how to, how to forgive your children. And, and whole sermons on this on how to handle or not handle a rebellious child, rebellious teenager. Another truth is, another, another uh, opinion on this is, is that David was um, not, not practicing partial forgiveness, but he was trying to establish justice. That he was trying to establish justice. Somehow, figure it out. And then the third group would tell you, well, David was 
bringing Absalom along. He knew that Absalom wasn't repentant, but he wanted to give him this gesture of grace to show him, I'm willing to receive you, Absalom. I believe, and therefore this is what I'm going to (laughs) teach, that it's a combination between the two. I think David was in a strange predicament. Because here it is, I'm king. When my son raped my virgin daughter, I did nothing. I did nothing. When my son murdered my son, I haven't done anything. I don't know what to do here. Now, folks, you say, well, that's a strange and unique situation um, because David was king and father. Well, let me remind you, Dad, in your house, you're a king and you're a father. You're the authority. This is where the promises of God come into play, especially James chapter 1. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, because he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea. Driven and tossed. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Sometimes, gentlemen, and mamas too, but gentlemen in particular today, a man needs the wisdom of God in handling the errors of his children. Because you got to be king and father. you got to be just and merciful. And sometimes... That's a difficult thing to do. Can you give me? That's good. Give me an amen. That's good preaching whether you like it or not. Let me say it this way. That's good preaching whether you think you got it figured out or not. Amen. You know, sometimes we all think we're James Dobson. But we're not all James Dobson. we got to have the wisdom of God. And so, David, I think, was in between the two. I've got to be just... But I've also, I also don't want to lose him. I want to forgive him. So I'm going to give him this overture of grace. Son, I want you back, but you, you've got to repent of this sin. You've got to deal with it by law. You, you've got to come with a, with a contrite heart and, and let's offer sacrifices and receive forgiveness. And, and you've got to repent, son, in order to appropriate my forgiveness. And so he offered this overture, come to Jerusalem, but you can't see my face. Folks, you can't see God's face without repentance. And so Absalom keeps him at a distance. Now... The sad truth is Absalom never repents. He doesn't repent. He doesn't come back to the Lord. He doesn't come back to the king. He doesn't come back to David. And in these verses, uh, 25, it gives us a description of Absalom. And I want to read to you why I believe what I believe about David's action. Verse 25, he, he just kind of inserts this and tells us about this character Absalom. But in all Israel, was, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. He's talking about physical beauty. This was a good-looking kid. 
From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Perfect. And when he pulled his head, when he cut his hair, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. So he was really handsome. He was not brokenhearted over his sin. And he was not brokenhearted over the dysfunction that his sin caused. But he had beautiful hair. He had beautiful hair. He didn't look like me and Brooks McKay, did he, Brooks? He had beautiful hair. He had it all going for him. He had, a, he had heavy hair, but he didn't have a heavy heart for his sin. He was fleshly. The rabbis, the ancient rabbis said what he would do when he would ride around town is he had all that long, beautiful hair. He would cover it in gold dust so it would glimmer in the sun and attract attention. And when he cut it, it depends on the king's weight at the time, his hair would weigh three to five pounds. You know what that means in the Hebrew? That's a heap of hair. He was more like Saul than he was King David. Fleshly. Let me wow them with the flesh. Let me wow them with my ability to speak. Let me wow them with my beauty. Let me look real good. Let me look real good. And then it goes on, and we see that Absalom, he wanted mercy, but he would not give mercy. Read on. And unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance. Remember Tamar's sister, he named his daughter after her. That shows us his, his love for his sister. But he murdered, after two years of planning and plotting, he murdered his brother. Showed no mercy in this. No appeal at all. But that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted, mercy, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't give it. And he dwelt two full years, verse 28, in Jerusalem, and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king. In other words, Joab, I, I came back to Jerusalem to see the king. I want to see the king. I want to see the king. But Joab wouldn't respond. Joab wouldn't come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore Absalom said unto his servants, look at verse 30, see that's Joab's field right there. He's got barley planted it near mine. Go and set the barley field on fire. And he set his barley fields on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I've heard sermons on this about God getting people's attention. And, and, and you know, God does get your attention, but that's really not what's taught here. This is not about God. This is about God's getting your attention. This is about Absalom's arrogance. This is about his arrogance and about how he makes demands on people, on authority. I'm going to burn 
Joab's field. That'll get him over here. Perhaps Joab had seen what Absalom was really like and knew it wasn't going to work out, knew he'd made a mistake. I don't know, but, but it got his attention when them fields got on fire, because that's money. And so Joab went to see him, and Joab came to Absalom's house and said, Why have your servants burnt my field? And Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I send unto you, saying, Come hither, come here, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore I am come from Geshur. It had been good for me to stay in Geshur. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. There's his arrogance. He doesn't acknowledge that he's a murderer. He doesn't acknowledge that he broke God's law. He's saying, I'm innocent, and if the king thinks I'm guilty, let him kill me. I'll convince him of my innocence. He mocked justice. Why am I come from Geshur? He needs to accept me. And look what happens. So Joab came to the king. And told him. And when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Hypocrisy. This looks very humble. We're going to find out in January it wasn't humble repentance, it was a fake contrition at best. Far from it, far from reality, there was no repentance. And the king kissed him. What are some lessons we learn from this? Well, first of all, is a lesson about the importance of the Word of God. We had a cast of characters in this chapter. Think about it. Who's missing? Nathan's missing. The old prophet. The one who spoke God's word with clarity is missing. David didn't consult him. Joab didn't consult him. Joab didn't go to Nathan and said, go talk to the king. He went to a wise woman from Tekoa. It's a lesson about forgiveness. Folks, let me share something with you about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. If you forgive somebody, that does not mean you have to have a relationship with them. You may never be able to have a relationship with them again. You may never be able to to reconcile what they've done, what you've done, what both of y'all have done. You may never be able to be the best of friends again. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a one-time thing. I've had people say, boy, when I saw him in Walmart the other day, all that anger welled up in me. I thought I had forgiven him. You did. But you need to forgive him again. See, Jesus, when Peter said, Jesus, how often should we forgive people? Seven times? Peter was being generous because the rabbis taught three times. You forgive somebody three times, three strikes, you're out. So Peter was being generous, and then Jesus gave an infinite number. And he was telling us, you might have to forgive somebody for the same offense over and over again for the rest of your life. It is a choice you may have to make at any given moment. When you look at me, you might need to say, I need to forgive him. And yes, you do. And so forgiveness is not a one-time thing. But in chapter 14, verse 14, this woman came and she gave some good advice. Even though it was not the right approach, it was good advice to David. She said, David, you need to forgive this boy 
and show forgiveness to him because one day it's going to be too late. We're all going to die. And you don't want to die without it being resolved. And second of all, it could be too late in that it's water spilt on the ground. That's what we're going to be like, unable to gather it again. And so, Absalom needed to receive forgiveness. And David needed to be granted. And I think he was wanting to and trying to. But forgiveness is simply this. Giving up your right to get even and hold a grudge. Now, did you hear what I said? Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even. That's one thing. But hold a grudge is the next. Forgiveness is saying, this situation is in God's hands. I'm just going to be obedient in the power of the Holy Spirit as best I can toward that person. And I'm going to let God take care of it. That's what forgiveness does. Also, it's a lesson about following through with your actions. Joab brought Absalom back and then just quit. If you make a mistake, take steps to solve it, folks. Don't let your barley fields get set on fire. Time and time again, people get into something and they realize, "Uh uh-oh, This isn't right, and they just leave it. You can't do that. Your body field's going to get burned up. All right? You got to go in and solve it. You got to take responsibility for it. I wish we had a section in here where Joab went up to David and said, David, I made a mistake. I shouldn't, you're right. I shouldn't have brought that boy home. We should have waited. We should have done this. We should have done that. I think David would have said, Well, it's okay. Now let's figure out a way to deal with it. But also, we learn a lesson about the cross. David sought to devise a way to reconcile Absalom to himself and the nation, and it did not work. Why? Verse 39, Absalom came to the king in absolute arrogance and hypocrisy, and the king kissed him. This was a symbol of pardon. This was David offering him everything that Absalom could possibly need to be reconciled, to be received into the kingdom, to be restored as a prince. A symbol of pardon. But Absalom's heart was not changed. He was unrepentant. No repentance. Let me ask you something. Have you ever read the New Testament, in particular Luke 15? Wasn't there another father who kissed another son? Another banished son? Who ran away from home and took all the inheritance? Wound up in a hog pen and came to himself in the hog pen and said, In my father's house are more servants and more food than I could ever have, and I'm starving to death in this hog pen, I will go to my father and I will repent and tell him I have sinned against him and heaven, and he will receive me and I will just simply be a slave. And that father kissed him, and he received that kiss and had a contrite heart. Not Absalom. Not Absalom. You cannot, you cannot... Come to God and be reconciled and appropriate His forgiveness without repentance of your sin. Now, I want to show you one more thing, but don't be getting ready to go. Don't don't, don't disturb yourself by getting ready to go. On the cross, Jesus, Jesus, we see the kiss of the King on the cross.
You see, David had the dilemma that a dad would have. Be a king, justice. Be a father, mercy. Psalm 85, on the cross, the question is asked, will you revive us again? May we ever come to a point where we can have mercy from you? Will we hear you speak? Will salvation be nigh to me? Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. And then here it is. Mercy and truth, justice, are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And that's what happened on the cross. And that's how the banished are brought back. That's how justice is met. And that's how mercy is met. It's at the cross where Christ where Christ took the justice of God and died for our sins while giving us mercy. That's where the kisses, the kiss of the king for us is received. And so, are you away from God today? Are you away from the king? Are you banished off somewhere? Has he showed you overtures of grace and mercy and kindness? Let me tell you something. Absalom came to Jerusalem, but the king said, you can't see my face. If you're in this room without a personal relationship with Jesus, without the mercy of God upon you and forgiveness and reconciliation, you're in the room, but you haven't seen his face. You haven't received that kiss. You need to come to Jesus with a contrite heart. And say, here I am with my sin, Lord. Do as you will. And I want to tell you what. He'll forgive you and receive you unto himself. Would you do that today? Let's stand for our song of appeal. And we will pray and invite you to come to Jesus. If you're not 100% certain that if you died today that you'd go to heaven, you need to come to Jesus. Receive the king's kiss in humility and a contrite heart. You come after we pray.